0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in-between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello everyone. Today we have another Backer Rewards episode. But if you'd like to hear more from me this week, I did another interview for the Wonders of the World podcast. I talked all about Justinian, Theodora, the Ahia Sophia, and visiting uh, it and other places in Istanbul. And for anyone thinking, uh, man, it's been ages since we covered Justinian, I've forgotten all that, then fear not, because the host of the show, Drew Varenkamp, gives you the background to the story in between our discussion. And for those of you who are keen to get back to the narrative, I promise you we are not far away. Next week we need to talk about the economy, then the rise of the Turks, and then I'll answer the rest of your end-of-the-century questions, talk about our sources for the post-Basel II world, and then we're back to business. For now though, we have a major Big picture question from Kickstarter backer, Jake.
0: Hi Robin, this is Jake. Rather than asking you three separate questions for the Kickstarter thing, I'm hoping you might offer your thoughts on one big question instead. So here it is. Setting aside political boundaries and administrative structures and thinking instead in terms of population movements, cultural conversion, and ethnic identities, what does the sweep of history look like in the Byzantine world for the period you've covered, so about 500 to 1000 CE? In other words, how different would the maps look if we focused on the boundaries between self-identifying social groups rather than which emperor or king controlled which territory at a given time? You've previously commented on the fact that the political lines drawn on maps are generalizations or overstatements of centralized control anyway, so which factors would have been the most relevant to the people actually living there at the time? I appreciate any thoughts you can offer, even if you don't have good sources to draw on, so thanks for giving it a shot.
1: Wow, what a question. Obviously one could write a dissertation or even a book in attempting to really cover all the potential angles of this. I'm going to have to focus on one particular approach. I think we can break the Byzantine world down into three distinct zones, the Balkans, Anatolia, and the eastern provinces. I'm going to look at each at two particular moments, and I'm going to focus on Jake's line, which factors would have been most relevant to the peoples living there at the time. And by factors, I mean what were the practical concerns for ordinary people in the wake of major political change. So if being included or excluded from the administrative structures of a large empire was not the most relevant concern for most people, what was? I think this will get us into population movement and cultural change as we go. Let's take our first point of reference as 700 AD. The 7th century saw the Byzantine world change forever with the rise of Islam and the loss of the Balkans. And this is where map makers have to make difficult decisions about what exactly to display. Back in 500, the Balkans was a solidly Roman place on our maps, but by 700 it had slipped almost completely from imperial control. The maps you see now either show a blanket of Slav tribes or suggest that the Bulgars, Serbs, Croats, etc. um, were specifically in charge of parts of it. What was most relevant to people living there during this upheaval? Well, it's worth saying that the Balkans had been a war zone on and off for several centuries. It had been a prime target of raids during the crisis of the 3rd century, and then had been occupied or savaged by the Visigoths, the Huns, and the Ostrogoths. Needless to say, the Balkans was not a place where peaceful urban life really existed. It was rugged country, and owing to its varied landscape, its communities could live quite separate lives from one another. What kept them together was the regular travel back and forth of imperial troops and administrators. They largely disappeared during the civil war between Phocus and Heraclius, and would not return for a long time. To the people on the ground, this meant a great deal of localization. Instead of seeing themselves as part of a continent-wide network, many had to adapt to new local power structures. The structures which turned out to be the most robust were the tribes of the incoming Slavic people. It's a mystery to us exactly how this process took place, but Romanness in the region seems to have withered because of the lack of cultural cohesion amongst the population. You may remember that back in 500 AD, some maps show the northern Balkans being populated by Latin speakers and the southern half by Greek. These are broad linguistic generalisations, and in keeping with the fragmented geography, different communities in different places spoke different dialects, some heavily influenced by Latin or Greek, some not. This disparity probably meant that there was more pressure on ex-Roman peasants to learn the Slavic tongue than the other way round. Slavic migration was significant enough that most of the countryside began to adapt to this new reality and identify themselves with their local leaders over any lingering loyalty to Constantinople. Moving on to Anatolia. In 700 AD, many living there would have predicted the end of Roman rule. Caliphal armies were actively absorbing its margins and marching across it with impunity. Impunity. Seventeen years later, the great siege of Constantinople would begin. Anatolia had largely avoided the depredations which the Balkans had suffered, but once 600 AD arrived, that all changed. First the Sasanids, then the Arabs sacked all the wealthy cities of the peninsula and reduced it to a pitiful state. This happened pretty suddenly compared to, say, the Balkans, and it must have been quite a shock. Of course, Roman rule would survive, but for Anatolia that meant becoming a permanent buffer zone. What changes would have been most relevant to the peoples living there at the time? At this stage, just the obvious stuff which we've covered repeatedly. People had to adapt to their way of life. They had to move their homes up mountainsides or underground, They had to organize local defense forces and build watchtowers. Many had to abandon the cash crops that they relied on because they were easy to steal and uh, were a target for raiders, and instead switch to livestock, uh, which could be moved or hidden more easily, which obviously was quite a big change of life for people who'd been farming their whole lives. Over in the eastern provinces, uh, life had settled down by 700 to the new order of things with the Arab-run Caliphate in charge. In a sense, life had changed the least for the Roman peoples of Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, particularly for, say, the Copts living in villages along the Nile. Plant, harvest, pay tax, Arab, Roman, same difference. In the east, Most cities had not been sacked, and for some, Arab rule was preferable because it meant an end to imperial pressure for religious conformity. What else would have mattered most to people living at the time? The rise of the Caliphate meant a reorientation in the economic geography of the whole region. The Roman economy was centred on the Mediterranean, allowing the surplus grain of Egypt and Africa to be carried north, now that the Arabs were in charge, the seas had to share space with the desert as a commercial route. Caravans now traversed the sands in ever greater numbers, carrying messages, armies and pilgrims to and from Mecca and Medina, and then out to Damascus, Kufa, Wasit, Basra, Mosul, Hamdan, Re, and so on. Naturally, for those who had looked to the sea for their living and culture, They now had to turn inland to find employment and relevance. Let's jump ahead to 1000 AD and look at how these adaptations have affected our three zones. In the Balkans, a common culture had now grown up amongst the largely Slavic-speaking peoples there. Its outward expression was a desire not to become tax-paying subjects of the empire. This might sound simplistic, but the willingness of populations to pay direct taxation was a massive factor in defining culture and behaviour. A population who accept that tax is fair are far easier to rule and allow for a civilian government to develop, whereas one that resists taxation will require a militarized elite to constantly patrol their behavior and cajole them to accept some kind of settlement. The fragmented geography of the Balkans allowed the Slavs a degree of independence that was too desirable to give up, and offered them enough of a screen from Roman attacks to be a practical ideology. So once the Slav tribal structure had absorbed most of the ex-Roman peasantry, there was little that could shift this culture. Not domination by the militarized Bulgar elites, nor conversion to Christianity. The peoples of the Balkans saw themselves as independent of Roman culture, and even a century and more of imperial occupation will not be enough to change that. Perhaps a map of the Balkans during this period could show the willingness of populations to pay tax in coin, and the development of that shading over the centuries would give us a greater sense of the sweep of history, at least from an imperial point of view. In Anatolia, something like the opposite proved to be the case. With the endless wave of Arab raids, the population became more dependent on Constantinople than they had been before. Not just for defence, but for money. Back in 500, a Cappadocian farmer might have looked to Armenia or Syria as potential markets for his goods. Now he had to look to the capital or the army camps if he was going to turn a profit. This had knock-on effects, making Anatolia an even more Roman place than it had been. Back in 500, we were still dealing with groups like the Isaurians, the mountain dwellers, who were suspicious of Roman rule and treated like barbarians by the elites. By the year 1000, it was hard not to be a Greek-speaking Orthodox Roman if you wanted to get on in Anatolia. Now, waves of migrants had settled there, Slavs, Armenians, Goths, Paulicians, Bulgarians, Arabs, Kuramites, but within a few generations, they became indistinguishable from other Romans, at least as far as the sources are concerned. Here, maps are fairly accurate in portraying solid Roman control. It's only when the empire moves into the mountains that things become oversimplified. As we saw in our recent episode on Armenia, Roman control in the Caucasus was of a negotiated, militarised nature. Finally then, the East in 1000 AD. Of course it had happened long before this, but any remnants of Greek-speaking Roman culture were by now largely gone. Even amongst communities who'd maintained their Christianity, the language of life was Arabic. This had many effects, of course, on the way people learned and thought. Children would read poems about the Bedouin of the desert rather than the heroes of the Iliad. The educated would discuss Christian doctrine through the lens of centuries of intellectual duels with their Muslim neighbours. A doctrine like iconoclasm was as much a foreign language as the Greek it was expounded in. To some extent, this cultural conversion was deeper than the religious one. The majority were now Muslim, but substantial Christian populations remained in the former Byzantine provinces. As we saw a couple of episodes ago, conversion to Islam depended on circumstance more than general cultural pressure. To take an example, uh, doctors were often Christians in cities like Baghdad. Now, if you were a doctor in a rich city and you had a client base of wealthy families, you could set yourself up nicely, and your family might remain Christian doctors for generations There was no need to change and no pressure to do so. Uh, Your payment of the jizya was a benefit to the Muslim community, so both sides were happy with this arrangement. Whereas if you were so bright that you began to give advice to the governor or command troops or administer taxes, then there might be pressure. Don't you want to join the club? You could be a governor yourself one day but they wouldn't appoint a Christian. Convert now, and your children might one day be wealthy members of the elite. And as we also discussed, this could work the other way. Uh, Down in Egypt, when the Shia Fatimids took over the Sunni Egyptians, it was a positive benefit to be a Jew or a Christian in the administration. You would cause less resentment when you issued decisions over the Sunni faithful. That is a pretty broad survey of changes in the culture and populations of the Roman Eastern Mediterranean. It brings up a couple of things which help us understand the narrative. For example, it was easier, in a way, for the Romans to govern Arabic-speaking Muslims in Syria than it was to rule Christian Bulgarians in the Balkans because the former were used to a system of tax-paying civilian government, whereas the latter were committed to maintaining an independent lifestyle at great cost. That's one of those things which the maps can't tell us. It's also worth mentioning that there are dozens of smaller peoples living across the Roman and Arab worlds who identified only with their own tribe or tribes, many of whom lived quite independent existences and would not consider themselves part of the larger state whose shading dominates the map Um, particularly um, sort of transient groups groups who moved about the deserts or the mountains or um, rougher areas and didn't pay a land tax and obviously they would be um, charged commercial dues if they traveled to markets or particular cities but they might not consider themselves living within an empire at all Um, but if we colored our maps based on these self-identifying social groups uh, well it would be a mess and it would also be impossible to do because of our lack of sources but that's something that I struggle to communicate and hopefully in future Byzantine stories I might be able to shine a light on some of these areas but um, lots of places particularly Uh, in the Balkans and in the Taurus Mountains, there were whole communities who I think, um, you know, they may have suffered from the raids or uh, requisitions of armies, but beyond that wouldn't have really viewed themselves as part of um, a state or politics at all. And that's the sort of thing that um, does not get mentioned (laughs) Uh, often in the history books because it's too nuanced and When people say, oh, the Romans have conquered all this territory, you know, how could they then lose it all or, you know, whatever? And you think, well, governing an area filled with people who are ungovernable is not a great benefit. Um, That's why settled farmers who are used to paying tax are so much more valuable than some other groups. Anyway, ultimately, the maps can only mislead us so far. Um, Obviously, I focused on the events of the 7th century because they really did change the world forever. The Slavs took over the Balkans, the Arabs, the East, and their cultural influence on those places has lasted until today, and certainly outlasted uh, Byzantium. Is there a way of shading the maps to make them look more relevant to the reality on the ground? I think you could draw one based on the influence of the state, one which would see centers like Constantinople and Cairo and Baghdad with dark colors shading the areas they controlled effectively and then getting lighter and lighter in areas where their control was much weaker. I think that would give a more realistic impression than simple color coding based on borders. And... uh, As I said at the beginning, there's obviously a lot of different ways one could tackle this question. While we're talking about the sweep of history, though, I don't think I've shared this on the podcast before, and sadly I can't locate the reference for it at the moment, but um, one scholar I read kind of commented that the one way to view the sweep of history, um, particularly across the period we're talking about, is to... Extend your arc much further back into history and look at the struggle for control of the Middle East uh, between European and Asian peoples. So if you go back to Alexander the Great, uh, he destroyed the Achaemenid Persian Empire and brought Hellenistic culture to the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. Uh, You know this, uh, Antioch and Alexandria were founded on the principles of Greek city living. And, of course, Alexander may have attempted to extend this further, and as might his generals and descendants. But, eventually, uh, most of them were overthrown by native Asian peoples, um, including the Susanid, or, you know, the Parthians and and so on. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, The... European civilization, as it were, that was established on the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean stayed in place, of course, because the Romans arrived. And they uh, encouraged those cities to maintain that sort of Hellenistic style of living. And obviously they were there from, uh, you know, the 1st century AD until the 7th century. And this period created a political geography based around the Syrian desert as the the border zone between European um, origin civilizations and Asian ones. Um, As we just mentioned, the Parthians um, took over from the remnants of uh, Alexander's generals' states and then they were replaced by the Sassanids. And uh, so you had these two sides looking at each other across the Syrian desert. You had Iraq... Um, on one side, backed usually by the resources of Iran, as we would think of them. And these two power blocks um, formed the the basis of uh, the Middle East for centuries, and the dynamics of politics, culture, and the economy operated around the Syrian desert. And the rise of the Arabs, who of course used that desert to such devastating effect, to create their own empire, meant that people of Asian Asian origin took back the whole area. So the European civilization, as it were, these are very loose definitions, uh, the Romans, they were pushed back into Anatolia, and the Asian civilization, the Arabs, took over the whole of the Middle East. And this, of course, made the Syrian desert no longer a border instead syria and iraq were now part of the same state just as they had been under the achaemenid persians before alexander invaded so if you take the names of political states out of it and you were to color a map purely based on a very broad european versus asian civilizational conflict then it's interesting to see the sweep of time in this way um In fact, looking super long-term, we might note that the Greek and Roman period, sort of 300 BC to 700 AD, is quite an exception in the history of the Middle East. In fact, where we are now in the narrative in 1025 um, was far more typical of the Middle Eastern balance of power. You know, Byzantium, the Anatolian power, and then the Fatimids in Egypt in the south, and the Buyids in Iran, and a sort of chaotic Baghdad in the middle. That division of power is far closer to how things operated before the Achaemenid Persians in biblical times, and it's roughly how things are today in Turkey, Egypt, Iraq, Iran. It's interesting to ponder um, that Alexander the Great, followed up by the Romans, created quite an unusual historical situation in that region. So there you go, there's another sweep of history um, way of looking at our period and uh, how one could shade it on a map. I attempted to answer this question in several different ways over the course of this week, and I'm not sure I'm entirely satisfied your feedback would be welcome on better ways to document the sweep of history over our period but thank you so much to jake for the question next time we look at the economic recovery across byzantium and tackle a series of listener questions in the meantime check out wonderspodcast.com or search for wonders of the world wherever you get your podcasts Not only can you hear me talking about Justinian, but Drew will take you all around the wonders of our world, exploring the history and what you can see when you visit today.